Tonight we're going to continue our study in uh, Jude. So you can turn in your Bibles to New Testament book of Jude all the way in the back. <clears throat> and we've been looking at how to recognize uh, what the Bible calls as spiritual apostates, those who turn away from the faith. And Jude reminds us that they crept into the church in verse 4. And he says that uh, we need to kind of take a stand, to contend for the faith against these uh, errant teachings and individuals who are kind of making their, their way into churches today. And we've been looking at um, the characteristics of these people in verses 8 to 11. And we just quick review, we notice some of the attitudes that they reflect in verses 8 to 11, and we talked about their immorality, their insubordination, and their irreverence uh, toward God and toward his word. And so they defile the flesh, they reject authority, they want to go out and do their own thing, and they blaspheme uh, the glorious ones or angels by uh, their wrong teaching of God's word. And we kind of saw that fleshed out in some examples that Jude gave us in verses 9, 10, and 11. He talked about the experience of Michael and the, and the devil and how Michael, he was a holy uh, angel and the devil obviously was a fallen angel, but even Michael wouldn't uh, judge or wouldn't blaspheme uh, the devil. That's how much respect he had because he was an angel. And they kind of related it to these false teachers don't have that kind of um, reverence for God or his word or his angels, for that matter. And so they're out there teaching false teachings, and they don't really care about that. And then in verse 10, we talked about the extent to which these, these false teachers will go. And then in verse 11, the examples they follow, and he gave us three of them, one being Cain, who was the first uh, being born here on earth, and uh, how he misapplied God's truth. He obviously knew which offering to bring, but he didn't do it. And then we moved on to Balaam, and we talked about his sinful ambition uh, in God's work. He wanted to be used so much, he, he didn't do it the right way, and, and got in trouble that way. And then the rebellion of Korah, we looked at that, I think it was last time, against the appointment of authority. And um, Korah would have been, I think it's Moses' uh, cousin. I think that's right. And he was uh, probably jealous because he wasn't a priest. They didn't make him a priest. And so he read a, led a whole rebellion against Moses and therefore against God because God was, or Moses was God's appointed leader. And so we, we looked at these, verses 5 through 7, we saw three cases of apostate judgment. These people will be judged. And we saw um, the, the three cases there, Sodom, Gomorrah, and um, the, the angels, and so forth. And then in verses 8 to 10, we saw these characteristics of this apostate nature. And then in verse 11, he gives us uh, three comparisons of these, these apostate influence uh, with with those three characters. And so tonight we want to look at move on and look at verses 12 and 13. And what Jude does here is he begins to give us a comparison, another comparison, but it's not three, it's actually five. 
And he points out five things that these uh, apostate teachers, these teachers who are, have crept in and people don't even know they're there. And he relates it to, uh, you could say, just natural phenomena or, or, or nature. Uh, and he talks about these, these five things. And it really is speaking of how these characters, these false teachers, are in terms uh, associated with believers. Because remember, they're in the church. These aren't people outside of the church. These are people who have crept in to the church. And they're disrupting, they're causing problems. And so he uses five different examples here in verses 12 and 13. And the first one being their hidden reefs. But this isn't something unusual. The Bible does this a lot. Um, Jesus, remember in his, his parables, in the Gospels, he was always pulling from an agrarian illustration or something. He, he would illustrate a, a spiritual truth with an object lesson. That's basically what a parable was. And so he talked about, you know, the parable of the soils, for example, right? Well, they would understand that. Today, we, probably people wouldn't understand it because we don't plant things as much as they did back then and all that. We don't have an agrarian society. But he talked about the parable of the so soils. He talked about the parable, remember, of the tares, right, and the wheat, and um, the parable of the fig trees, he used that. A parable of a lost sheep. These are all things that they would have just been part of their daily routine. Okay, we don't have sheep in our backyard. We don't have, um, you know, corn stalks growing in our front yard or backyard. You know, we don't do that kind of thing here in this area. In parts of the country, they still do that. But, however, I, I, I heard that originally the house we live in now... Um, before it was donated uh, to the church. The couple that lived there, he used to be a greeter here at the church. They actually grew corn in their front yard right on Jetter Street. <laughs> so it's kind of an odd, odd thing to see that. But, you know, I guess teach his own. Um, that would be an odd thing to see in Redwood City, somebody having a, a cornfield in their front yard. <laughs> but, uh, you know, now you'd probably be more likely to see, uh, what, uh, chicken chickens in the backyard, right? Because the eggs, eggs are so expensive. But so the Bible uses these kind of illustrations over and over. The Psalms are, uses it continuously, um, talking about creation, talking about natural phenomena, things like that. And so he, he talks about these five things. He talks first about, um, depending on what translation you have, I'm, I'm reading out of the ESV, and so you can just follow along there. In verse 12, he says, these are hidden reefs at your Love feasts. Uh, some say, some translations say spots. Uh, I think hidden reefs is the best translation. Um, not that it's just in the ESV. I think it's in the New American Standard as well. But it's, it's important that you, we'll, we'll dig into that. But then he moves on and he says, what? Waterless clouds. See it there? Waterless clouds. Fruitless autumn trees. Fruitless trees. Wild sea waves. And wandering stars. So he uses five examples that they would have completely understood. Okay, they would have said, oh yeah, we get this. And so we want to go through these, these five things here tonight and just see what we can kind of glean from verses 12 to uh, 13. So follow along there. I'll just read, read, read these for you in verse 12. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. So they're, they're actually part of these, these feasts they're having. Shepherds feeding themselves. And then he gives a second illustration, waterless clouds swept along by winds. 
And then he gives a third one, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. And then verse 13, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. And then the last illustration he uses of these, these apostate teachers is wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And so let's look at this first one here. These are kind of interesting phrases he uses. He talks about really their selfish concealment within the church. Their selfish concealment. He, he calls them hidden reefs. Have you, ever, have you ever been on a boat and gone out in the ocean and you've had to kind of navigate um, around a reef or a log or or maybe a, a, a piece of uh, stone that's sticking out, you know, that can do a lot of damage to a boat if you don't see it and you hit it, all right? And, um, and reefs do, coral does a lot of damage anyway. I remember one time we were in Hawaii, I think it was the first time, second time we were there, we took our daughter Crystal, and um, we were going to go out and do some snorkeling. And in this part of the beach, they had like channels, like where you kind of go out and then, but in between the channels, there's a lot of coral and the water covered it, but it wasn't real deep. <laughs> but when the waves would come in, it would, you know, it, it would, you would have enough room. And so I remember I didn't want Crystal in a separate channel than myself because I wouldn't have anything to do with it. Anything happened to her. So when the wave, I, t I thought I timed it right, came in and the water came up. I thought, well, I'll just kind of just swim over real quick. <laughs> Well, the water went out before I got over, and I just remember, and it hurt. I mean, if you've ever been on coral, it really, it's really painful. And, um, and that's the idea here. These hidden reefs, uh, speedless in the original language, it talks about heretics who come into the church, these apostate teachers, and they hide within the church. Um, turn over to, to 2 Peter. Remember, 2 Peter chapter 2 is almost a commentary on Jude. Uh, it's, they're very similar in the way that they read and the way they, they talk about these things. But look at um, 2 Peter chapter 2. And a verse, I want to zero in on verse 13. And he's talking about the same subject matter. He's talking about false prophets and teachers and how, they have, how they've uh, kind of come in. And um, look at verse, uh, the end of verse 10 there. I'll just start there. 2 Peter 2.10. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. We looked at that when we were talking about the angels. And then verse 11. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Verse 12, but these, like irrational animals, and he's talking about these false teachers, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, which also will also be destroyed in their destruction. And then he says this in verse 13, and this is kind of the one I wanted to zero in on. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to to, to revel in the daytime, they are blots and blemishes revealing, reveling in their deception while they feast with you. Uh, the words there, uh, blots and blemish, is, is the exact same word that he's using over here 
as far as referring to hidden reefs. It's, it's very similar. And so he, in Second in Peter, he points out there that even though these people are with you, they're hidden among you, and he says they're eating with you in your feasts. And, and that's what verse, verse 12 uh, points out to us. There are hidden reefs at your love feasts, he says. And, um, you know, reefs are something that's under the water. You don't see it a lot of times. If you hit it with a ship, you're going to have a major hole in, your, in, the, in the bottom of your boat. It's going to create a lot of problems. And this is what he's referring they are. That's how he's describing them. They're, they're potentially harmful to the church because they can just rip it open and causing mass problems within a church. And if you've ever been part of a church at all for any period of time, you've maybe experienced that. Someone came in and started causing issues. Okay, uh, It happens all the time. And, and so you just have to be aware of that. Uh, and then he says, they cause issues, they're, they're eating with you. Back to Jude, verse 12. He says, at your love feasts. And what's he, what's he talking about here? What's a, what's a love feast? Well, in the early church, in the New Testament church, um, they, they would have a kind of a dinner, uh, a, a feast, really, around the Lord's table. And they would gather together for communion, and then the church would gather, and they would have food and, and fellowship, and uh, even teaching, encouragement. Um, sometimes around the tables of those feasts, there would be confrontation going on. Maybe there would be care going on. Uh, a lot of different things happened at those times of fellowship. It's, it's not a, I mean, it's not the exact same thing because we don't have communion every week, but when we gather over here after the service, right, we provide food, and hopefully as you're gathered around your table, you're, you're fellowshipping. You're, you're, you're eating food, and you're, you're, you're spending time with other believers, maybe talking about the message, talking about life, talking about whatever, but you're, you're getting to know each other, okay? And that's what they would do at these Love these. And so Jude is pointing out is you don't even realize these people are sitting at your table. These wrong teachers, these apostate teachers, they've crept in to the degree that you don't even recognize them. You don't even know they're there. And um, that can be very, very concerning. You know, a lot of times people ask, when they start coming to our church, they'll say, well, can, you know, how, how do you join the church? I said, well, there's a process to it. You know, you go through the membership class, you learn about the church, we tell you basically everything you need to know about the church, and you pray about it and fill out a questionnaire. We want to make sure theologically you kind of align with where we're at. And, um, you know, we, we go down that road together. And, but it's not a snap decision. It's not like you come one Sunday and the next Sunday you're a member. Why? Because of this reason. We want to make sure that we guard, right, uh, the fellowship here. And it doesn't, you know, you don't guard it to the point you don't let anybody in. We're not saying that. We want people to come. We want people to become members and everything. But we also want people to understand that we take it very seriously. You know, uh, I remember one time we had an individual coming and he visited the first Sunday. And after the service, he came up and he said, I, I teach. When can I teach? Next Sunday? Can I teach next Sunday? Because I'm a teacher. And I'm like, well, no, it doesn't work that way. And he was just like flabbergasted that I wouldn't let him have the pulpit the next week. And, uh, you know, that's a red flag, right? When someone wants to come in and just kind of start, because you don't even know them. And they don't know you, for that matter. 
Um, and so here they would have these feasts and these people who were, were trying to influence wrongly the congregation was sitting right there at the table with these folks, spending time, encouraging, fellowshipping, everything, and they didn't even know they were there. And so he calls them, he calls them hidden reefs, and it's because they were, they were hidden, but they could do a lot of damage, right? And, and we all know how that, that works. Um, and, and eventually, it got so bad that there was, as a matter of fact, turn over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, I'll just share, read this verse for you, these verses for you, because it kind of gives you a picture into what happened to these love feasts. I mean, it's not a bad idea. It's a good idea to get together and fellowship right after the service and, and all this stuff. But, but look at uh, beginning in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It tells us a little bit about what went wrong with these love feasts. And the reason I think it went wrong is because they were allowing these apostate teachers, these heretics there, to fellowship with them, even on communion. And so it says in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And then he says this, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now remember, this is a church he's writing to. These are believers for the most part. But unfortunately, I think unbelievers have crept into the mix. And so he's addressing the church. Um, look at what he says in verse 19. For in the first place, when you come together, what? As a church. He spells it right out. So we're not talking about unbelievers gathering as the church. We're talking about believers as the church gathering with a bunch of unbelievers in their mix. And it got so top-heavy. There were so many unbelievers. Look at what happens. I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So he's saying that, okay, there's factions among you, and there must be because you have all these other people in there that are not genuine. They're not genuinely saved. They're not genuinely there to fellowship. They're genuinely there to disrupt and divide and, and, and cause issues. And so he says, those who are, are genuine among you... Uh, you can recognize them by seeing the disingenuous. <laughs> Verse 20, when you come together, look at what he says. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Is it not the Lord's Supper? It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, he says in verse 21, each one goes ahead with his own meal. And so he's, he's criticizing, what he's doing is he's criticizing what was happening around the Lord's Supper. They turned it into this gluttonous feast. Okay, it would be like if we had, you know, steak and, 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 and filet mignon and lobster tail and every Sunday after church. And the only reason you came to our church was because you knew they had that in the fellowship all afterwards. Man, we're going to pig out. And you didn't care what was going on over there. You didn't care about the teaching. You didn't care about anything, music. Or anything. You just wanted to get, get your hands, your, your lips around that food. Okay, and, and so th this is what was happening in this church. It says, for in eating, verse 21, each one goes ahead of the other with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So they, they turned it into this gluttonous, drunken, well, we're going to read what happens. Look at verse 22. What, do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? 
or you dis- do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So what was happening, they were dividing on several fronts. There was an obvious division between believers and unbelievers, but there was also a division between the rich and the poor. Okay, maybe those who had homes, those who didn't. There was this big division going on. And so the ones with the power were, you know, coming over to the fellowship hall first, lining up and loading up their plates. And then when the people that maybe didn't have the wherewithal to get over here as quick, maybe the crippled, maybe the poor, maybe whatever, when they go to fill their plate, there was nothing left. (laughs) Okay, this is what was happening. And he says there in verse... um, uh, 22, if you're going to do that, eat in your own house. Don't, don't despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? And he says, shall I commend you in this? In other words, is this a good thing? Am I writing you, Paul says, because, boy, I'm so proud of the way you're handling this. No, I will not commend you, he says, very boldly. Verse 23, for I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. So he's recounting what this, the Lord's Supper is all about. He took, he, he took the bread, verse 24, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of, you, of, of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so he's saying this is the way it should be taking place. But then he goes on, look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. In other words, indifferently, or you could say ritualistically. It'd be just as bad as coming in here on a communion Sunday and saying, oh yeah, we, got the, you know, we eat the bread and do the cup thing, let's just get it over with. Okay, no. That's, it's, it's, it should be... Taken, you take some time, you have to understand what it is. That's why we always tell people when we have communion, you don't have to be a physical member of our church, of Grace Bible Church, but you do have to be a member of the universal church, right? You have to be a Christian. You should be a Christian. Um, because if you don't, if you're not a Christian, you try to you take communion, it doesn't really mean anything to you. If you haven't trusted in the sacrifice of Christ, if you haven't trusted in the sacrifice he made on Calvary and and understand that his blood covers your sins, and you don't understand all that, eating a wafer and drinking a little thing of grape juice isn't going to do you any good at that point. (laughs) Okay? Communion is not a means of grace. It doesn't give you the grace of God. It's basically a symbol that we use. In the New Testament church, there's two symbols. What's the other symbol? What? Baptism, right? So we we practice communion, and we practice baptism. Communion is a symbol of Christ's death and his sacrifice for us. Baptism is a symbol of what? Our inward change in our heart, in our life. You know, getting baptized doesn't save you. Um, and how do we know that? Well, what, what about the thief on the cross? Right? He was, <laughs> he was a, a criminal, but he came to know Christ on the cross as he was hanging right next to Jesus. And what did Jesus say today? He didn't say, oh, go join a church and go, go get baptized and then I'll see you in heaven. No, he said, you'll be with me in paradise. 
because of your faith and trust in the sacrifice that uh, on, 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 on your behalf that I'm, I'm doing right now as I'm hanging here. And so he wanted everybody to understand that. And so today, unfortunately, we make communion and we make baptism into kind of a, um, a, a ritualistic thing. It's a church activity. Somehow you, God loves you more if you go through these, these ordinances, they're called. All right? They're, they're basically just symbols. Baptism is a symbol of an inward change in your life. You're, you're doing something that God has commanded every believer to do. And if you're a believer here tonight and you haven't been baptized, you should be baptized. And it's not sprinkle, sprinkle on the head. The word in the New Testament is, is baptizo. It means to, to kind of put under the water. And whenever people were baptized in the New Testament, they always went down into the water. They never sprinkled them. They never put a couple drops on their forehead. So with that being said, he, he wants them to understand that, hey, this is, this is an important thing that you're doing here, but you got away from what, what I received from the Lord, Paul is saying. This is what it's about. It's not about what you made it to be. And then he says, if you're doing this in an unworthy manner, he says, you will be guilty concerning the, the body and the blood of the Lord. And then he says this, verse 28, let a person first examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So whenever we have, you'll notice, whenever we have Communion Sunday here, there's a time of examination. There's a time of reflection. It starts from the first prayer right up until Communion time, really. The music, everything is reflective of what we're doing when we celebrate Communion. And we usually pause and we give you an opportunity to reflect on your own heart. And that's the time, as a believer, because that's the people who should be taking Communion, you, you look at your own life. You know, and you examine it and you say, hey, what, you know, am I, is everything good with the Lord? Or is there an issue with somebody or do I, you know, do I have to confess something? And, and it's a time of, of self-examination. And so that's what he points out there. He says, hey, you know what, you should, you should first examine yourself, then go and eat of bread and drink of the cup. Verse 29, for anyone who drinks and uh, eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, that is why, look at this, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. This is how serious God takes this. This isn't something just to be laughed off. Verse 31, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. In other words, be polite. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. You don't come to church just to get the food. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And about the other things, I'll set an order. But he, he goes on in, in other areas of 1 Corinthians, and he begins to talk, and we don't have time to go through it tonight. We were already through that book. But Paul begins to kind of tell them, look, You've basically turned this into, um, pardon the, the, the language, but uh, almost like a drunken orgy. That's what this became in this church. There was sexual sin going on. There was drunkenness going on. There was just gluttonous behavior. It lost all reflection of what the Lord intended it to be. And it, it got so bad that they, they stopped having it for a period of time in the New Testament. 
it kind of fell off the map because it just got such, it was so filled with fleshly desires and things like that, they just had to stop it. Um, I mean, it was intended to be a regular routine thing for, for the church, the body of Christ. But when they gathered together with these unbelievers, with these false teachers, basically they influenced it so much that they just kind of had to uh, stop it altogether. And it passed from the scene altogether. And back to Jude, he, this is why he points out here, these are hidden reefs at your love feasts. Okay, this agape feast is, is the idea. And he says, as they feast with you, what does it say? Without what? Without fear. Without fear. Okay? Um, they have no fear of God, these people, who are eating around the community table with this church. They have no fear of God. They lack any kind of um, conscience or self-conviction. They didn't, they didn't care. They were, you know, eating all the food and not leaving any for anybody else. They didn't care. Um, they lacked any kind of concern for anyone else, including God. And that's really where an unbeliever is. Okay? An unbeliever is an unbeliever. Why? Because they're living for themselves. That's what they're doing. When someone tells them, hey, well, you know what? Um, if, you, if you continue down this path, it's not going to be good. You, you need to live for Christ. You need to come to Christ. You need to forsake your sin and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. A lot of those people will say, I don't need that. I'm doing just fine. Thank you very much. And I'm going to continue down this path. And they don't have any fear about it. Right? Uh, in 1 Timothy, turn over to 1 Timothy real quick. 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul kind of points this out. And uh, 1 Timothy 4, he, he wanted Timothy, who was this young pastor, kind of his student, to under, <clears throat> understand that there were certain uh, people within the church, heretics, apostates, that you had to be aware of. And he, look at what he says in verse, uh, verse 1. We'll just start in verse 1, 1 Timothy 4, 1. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, look at what it says, some will, what, depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. I mean, this is how bad these people are. And yet, the church seemingly embraces them sometimes. Verse 2, he says, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. All right, this is how hardcore they are. They, they don't even have a conscience anymore. Um, it's kind of like they, they just took a, a branding iron to it. In verse 3, he says, they forbid marriage, they require abstinence from foods. So they do some religious things that look very religious on the outside. But even Paul says, well, you know what? God created these foods to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So he's, he's giving indication here to Timothy, these people don't know the truth. They, they're not believers. Um, verse 4, for every, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is, it is to be received, if it is to be received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. 
And so he, he points out there that these people are liars. They have their consciences uh, seared. In other words, they don't function properly anymore. Uh, and the fact that their actions really do horrible damage to others is no concern to them. You know, I mean, just think of, for a moment with me, just think of some of the, the people you see on TV, these people that, you know, they have these mega churches or they have these big, you know, conference centers and all these poor people come and they sometimes have to pay money to go to these conferences because they think that somehow there's a glimmer of hope this individual has the capacity to heal them. And they, they bring their wheelchairs and everything. And you think, well, isn't that a good thing? Well, it's not, because it's a scam. You don't see people getting healed at these places. You see them going home with their wheelchairs, going home with their crutches. And what you see on the platform is totally different. That's all orchestrated. Why? Because of the very thing, they have no conscience. I mean, can you imagine advertising, come to Grace Bible Church on Wednesday night, and you will be healed. And then when you come, you're kind of shuffled to the back of the room, and we have some actors up here that act like they're sick, but they're really not. And I go through a charade, and oh, look at what God has done for them. And then we send the other people out the door with their wheelchairs. I mean, that's not right. I mean, I couldn't sleep at night. These people don't have any problem. Uh, some of you were here when Benny Hinn's nephew was here, Costi Hinn, and he said that when we went over to places like India, some of the poorest places in the world, to hold their crusades, okay, they would rent out a big coliseum and they would just fill it up with all these Indian people. In general, Indian people don't have a lot of money <laughs> over there. You know, it's a very poor. There's a lot of people and there's, there's, there's not a lot of money. And those that do have the money kind of are separated from those that don't. So you have all these people gathered in this Colosseum. And, you know, you think that if you really cared about these people, you would be doing something for them and for their need. Okay? And he would say how we'd go there, and he goes, it, it became such a weight on my conscience. This is Benny Hinn's nephew, who was part of the ministry. He said we would go over there, we would spend a couple nights with, with all these poor people, take their money from them, because they took up offerings. And these people were thinking, hey, I mean, that whole mentality is if you give God something, he's got to give you something back. You know, then I'll be prosperous. Then I'll get my healing. Just, just give it to Benny Hinn. And then on the way home, they would stay in Dubai at a $25,000 a night ho motel, hotel. I mean, crazy. You know, gold flakes on the bed. I mean, that, that really happens. You know, in their private little Learjet or whatever. And I'm thinking, wow, you just built all these people out of this money, and now you're going to go spend that much money every night? Why not give that money to these poor people? <laughs> if you're really concerned, it's because they don't have a conscience. They don't care. You know, they don't care. And that's why it's, it's always a, an avenue to your pocketbook. It's always an avenue to your purse. They, 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 somehow they, they want to find a way to make sure that they can negotiate and take your money and put it in their pockets. That's what it's all focused on. And so 
these people have crept into the, the church here. And, and Jude goes on and he, he even explains them a little more at the end of verse 12 there. He says, they feast with you without fear. And then look at what he says. He says, they, they feed themselves. Shepherds feeding themselves. Think about that for a moment. If you're a shepherd of a flock of sheep and you never feed the sheep, what's going to happen to them? Yeah, they're, they're not going to do very well. But if you're just always feeding yourself, constantly feeding yourself, that word there indicates that these apostate shepherds are not concerned. They don't shepherd anybody but themselves. They're only focused on themselves. Self-interest, self-gratification. And they don't care whose expense it comes from. It doesn't matter if it's the, the poor little widow lady that her husband passed away and she has a finite amount of money to live on. They don't care if they're on TV bilking her out of her monthly security check from the government. They don't care. Because they don't care about anybody but themselves. Um, that word uh, in, in the original to shepherd, it indicates that these apostates shepherded nobody but themselves. So they weren't really true shepherds. Um, they just fed themselves, just like the people in the communion service were just gluttonous, concerned about themselves. And so that's the first description of them. All right? The idea that they are um, just concealed within the church. They've crept in and they're, they're concealed, but they're, they're just focused on their own needs. They're very selfish that way. And so they're these hidden reefs. Secondly, he, he kind of relates it to their personal conduct in verse 12. He goes on and he talks about them as being waterless clouds. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. And you think, what in the world is he talking about here? Um, if you look at Second Peter once again, You'll see here what he refers to, 2 Peter 17. He actually refers it over to uh, demonic activity. In, in 2 Peter 2.17, he says, These are waterless springs, he uses different terminology, but the same idea, and mist driven by the storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And then he, he describes them. He says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they enticed by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise freedom. And here's the key phrase here in verse 19. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. So when they're, when they're called waterless clouds here in Jude, it means that they're, they're promising something they have, no, they have no ability to deliver. Think about it. If you were truly a, a faith healer, if, if you really had that supernatural gift like Jesus had and like some of the apostles had in the New Testament, I mean, they would literally go into a town and the town would be healed on the spot. I mean, they would wipe all disease, all illness off the map. I mean, that's why so many people followed him. If he was a fraud, they would figure that out, right? If he went into a town and said, oh, everybody's healed, but they're still walking away with their crutches and their wheelchairs. And uh, what's going on here, Jesus? 
if you really had that gift, where would you go as a Christian, as someone who is really concerned about the welfare of other people? Probably, where's the first place you would go? Probably go to a hospital, right? Personally, I'd go to a, a, a cancer ward where there's children. If I had that supernatural gift, if I could walk in there and say, you know what, be healed in the name of Jesus, be healed in the name of Jesus, that's what they did. But no, they don't do that. Think about how cruel this is. If you want to be healed, all you people, all you kids there in the cancer ward, you have to come out to my meeting at Grace Bible Church. And then, you know, if you want to sit up front where you might get healed, you know, you just put a little more in the bucket and we'll, we'll move you right up front. It's bizarre. And they do this with no conscience. But they don't have the ability to heal anybody. That's why it's a, a shell game. It's a shell game. Am I saying God doesn't heal? Absolutely not. God can heal. He definitely does heal. But he does not any longer give out this supernatural gift of healing to individuals. That was for the establishment of the church. That's why he did it then. Think about it. This church was a brand new concept. Yet Jew and Gentile together, worshiping together. That was so foreign. That would never have happened if it wasn't for the supernatural ability of the Holy Spirit and the supernatural ability of, of Christ's miraculous ministry. And then him passing on that ministry to who? The disciples and the apostles, right? They had the same power that Christ did to do those supernatural healings. But it didn't go on forever. There was a time when the church was established. And the, there was no longer the, the establishment of credibility needed for these guys. You know, when Jesus left the face of the earth and he just left it, handed it over to the disciples, I mean, they would have eaten these guys alive if they didn't have any kind of supernatural power. They were a bunch of fishermen, right? But what happened? The Holy Spirit gave these individuals supernatural ability to proclaim the word of God and to do, even in the New Testament, the book of Acts, we see it. People looked at him and go, aren't these the fishermen from Galilee? How is this happening? Why? Because it wasn't normal. It was supernatural. And the, way, the reason God did it back then, during that time, and gifted them with those particular gifts was to establish their credibility for the foundation of the church. But once the foundation of the church was established, you see it in the New Testament. Those gifts just kind of fall off. They fall away. And so we're not saying God doesn't heal. He can still heal. But he doesn't use individuals with the gift of healing today. And so he says here, these are waterless clouds. They, they just kind of, you know, they're, they're pretty. They look real nice and puffy and everything. But guess what? There's nothing in there. There's nothing in there. In Proverbs 25, verse 14, Proverbs says this, Solomon, like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. Think about that. Like clouds and wind without rain is a man who boasts of a gift he does not give. See, these guys promise all this, this spiritual blessing, just, just sow your seed. You know, you sow your seed, God will has to pay you back. And they come up with all these things. They tell people. And people believe them. I don't know why, but they do. It sounds good. 
and they rip scripture out of context and they convince people and pretty soon you got people writing checks endlessly. And most of these teachers, that's what they're interested in, the check. Matter of fact, I think it was uh, one of the, the, the Word of Faith teachers, uh, 60 Minutes, did an expose on them and they said, you know what we found? We went behind where their business center was, where all the mail was sent, and they found all the prayer requests and everything in the trash. The envelopes were slid open, checks, money was taken out, prayer requests were in the trash. That was a secular expose on these guys. And yet the church just, well, I guess that's real. They just keep on buying into it for some reason. And so, you know, whenever you're, you're teaching against it, it's, oh, you shouldn't be saying anything like that. Well, why not? These are, these are people who are harming people. You know, they're, they're really causing harm in people's lives. They're robbing people blind. Now you think of waterless clouds and normal weather cycles. Clouds, generally, you can anticipate rain. If it's a cloudy day out, oh, it might rain, right? There are some occasions, I remember in the desert when we lived down in Palm Springs, in August, you would get these like thunderhead clouds and they'd kind of come over the hill from Hammett and down, but it would never rain. You're praying for rain because, you know, it's like 120 degrees out and it's like dripping humid. And it's like, oh, it's going to rain. And you'd see the clouds, but it would never rain. And I always thought of this verse. I thought, wow, you know, that would be, be tortuous to just have to endure that, you know, to anticipate, wow, here come the clouds and the rain. But guess what? Nothing happens. And if you're interested in studying this more, I would really steer you to somebody like Justin Peters, who has a ministry online. Justin Peters Ministries, he's got a lot of YouTube videos, things like that, that he exposes these people for who they really are. And not just by talking about it, he actually, and he's got cerebral palsy himself, so he actually goes to these meetings, and he can't go that much anymore because they know who he is now, and they won't let him in. <laughs> but he would go, to, go there, and he would expose it. And he'd begin to talk to people, and he saw these, these poor crippled people leaving in tears, because some of them sacrifice everything to fly there to these meetings, promising, thinking somehow they're going to get healed. And so it's very devastating on, on people's lives. And by the way, he's going to be here, uh, Justin Peters will be here in October uh, for a, a weekend conference or equip conference. So we'll get you more information on that. But th this idea of clouds without water, they just basically give you a promise and a hope, but they fail to deliver. Um, and then it says here they're swept along. And this has the idea of just basically they're blown to and fro. They don't have any foundation to hold on to. They don't have any, um, you know, anchor of truth. It's like whatever, whatever will make them money, that's what they're going to go down that road next. You know, and the church has had to put up with this stuff for years. You know, you have everything from the Da Vinci Code, to all kinds of different things popping up and the church... I don't know why, but it goes after it, you know, hook, line, and sinker usually. But you have to stop and you have to realize, wait a minute, is this real? Is this not? You know, let's, let's think critically about things. All right? Um, but when he says waterless here, one commentator pointed out that this is also a term that's used over in the book of the Gospels, in the book of Matthew specifically, verse 43. It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, in other words, somebody who's demon-possessed and the unclean spirit leaves them, it passes, listen, through waterless places. 
seeking rest. And one commentator says that kind of ties this into, this isn't just, you know, their little Ponzi scheme. This is, this is empowered by demonic spirits, a lot of this teaching, that, that take people down the wrong path. Um, and so we want to be aware of that. Thirdly, not only their, their personal uh, conduct or their concealment, but thirdly, he talks about their character in verse 12, and he re- re- refers to them as fruitless trees, fruitless trees. Um, Archiposite, it, it means diseased. <laughs> it means something that cannot produce any fruit. And remember, um, autumn is a time back east when, when the autumn comes. What happens to all the leaves? They turn colors and it's beautiful, but then they fall off the tree, right? The tree goes kind of dormant for several months, and then it, in the spring it blossoms again. This is part of the agrarian cycle. It goes in and out like that. And so autumn is the season when farmers generally would expect some kind of a harvest. You know, you have, in the fall, a lot of times you'll, you'll hear somebody saying, well, we're going to have a harvest festival. You know, not so much around here, but, it, well, you kind of do, you see it over in Half Moon Bay, right, with the pumpkins and stuff, you know, they kind of has that flavor, right? Well, that's what they're talking about. This is the time when, when these, true, these trees should be producing some form of fruit. But look at how he describes these teachers. Uh, not only are they just, you know, uh, shepherds feeding themselves waterless clouds, but then he says they're fruitless trees in late autumn. When they should be producing fruit, there's nothing there. And then he goes on even further, and just so we understand what he is saying, he says twice dead. Twice dead. And uh, it's interesting phrase that he uses there. Um, They're fruitless because there's no life in them at all, but secondly, he says they're uprooted. I mean, think about it. If you wanted to kill a tree, what would you do? You know, you wouldn't just go out and trim it. That wouldn't kill it. You know, we had to cut down two trees right out here. And Hector was so kind to come and do that for us. But, you know, I didn't tell Hector just, well, he didn't come out and just cut a branch off and say, okay, job's done. No, what do you have to do? He had to cut the whole tree down. But even then, that wasn't good enough. Then we had to rip out the roots. And the entire root, then we knew finally it was dead. As a matter of fact, he didn't get all the the roots the first time and our our landscaper dick was out there pulling roots out that were actually starting to grow again all right because it wasn't completely dead and and so here he says these are diseased they're plucked up Um, there's not going to be any fruit from them at all and it's it's a very sad situation but they're dead at their very core and yet who are these people these are people who've crept into the church they're, they're eating around the table. When you have your little fellowship dinner, that's, that's the reality of this. Um, it's not as obvious as saying, oh, that tree's dead. No, they kind of blend in pretty well. Uh, and so we have to just be cautious. Uh, matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew 15, 13, he says, every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be uprooted. You hear that? Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant. In other words, there are people within the church, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they're not. They're professing themselves to be a Christian, but they're not. Why? Because they're not transformed. They're not saved. 
They're, merely, they're, they're, they're under the understanding that somehow if they come to church long enough and if they just you know, learn the language and do all this stuff, that eventually they'll just blend in. That's, that's not going to save you. Okay? It's not going to save you. The only thing that will save you is when you go before a holy God and say, you know what, I'm a sinner and I need grace because there's no hope for me outside of Christ. Uh, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the prayer that God needs to hear from your heart. So here, these people produce no life-changing fruit. It's all a sham. It's all just on the, on the outside. They're like the, the religious leaders that Jesus spoke of. They're like you know, whitewashed tombs. They look real good, but they're just an empty tomb. And then the fourth thing here he describes in verse 13 quickly is wild sea waves. He says in verse 13, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Uh, all these people, they don't have the Holy Spirit. So naturally, they're just going to do what comes natural to them, even though they're within the church. They may be guarded a little bit, but it's going to come out eventually. And eventually, their disgraceful attitudes and their actions will come forth. And a lot of times, by that time, the church has been so gullible. These people are in positions of leadership and everything else. And boy, everybody's going, oh, wow, what happened? <laughs> you know, well, somebody didn't do their due diligence in vetting these people when they came to the church. And so they got involved in things that they shouldn't have been involved in because maybe they're not even believers. But when he uses this word wild waves, the sea and, and waves in general basically is a symbol throughout Scripture for people who do not know God. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 57, listen to this, verse 20. It says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up, listen, mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So when, it, when the Bible uses terminology like waves and the sea, it's generally speaking of people who do not know God, do not know Christ. They're unbelievers. And this is really a graphic picture of what these people produce. You know, these aren't, they, they aren't just here to have a good time. There's an agenda uh, in their hearts. They want to divide. They want to, to cause issues. Um, they want to produce false teaching. And all this empty talk and all their self-serving activity, Jude says they're kind of like a, just a wild, out-of-control wave. Have you ever gone over to Half Moon Bay after a really, really big rainstorm, or any beach for that matter, Santa Cruz, and when we've had a really big storm and the seas were really crazy? What's all over the beach? Huh? Foam? What else? Garbage, right? You have all kinds of stuff. You have trees. You have seaweed. It usually doesn't smell good, okay, because all this stuff's rotting then on the... This is the picture that Jude is, is pointing to us. This is what, what happens. Uh, this is the fruit of these people in the end. It looks real good at first, but in the end, after the waves kind of settle down, all you see is, is all this, this, you know, deception, immorality, irreverence, heresy insubordination, everything that Jude has warned us about, now it's right there in plain view. And guess what? It stinks. <laughs> and you're stuck with it. And so, you know, he, he describes them in that, in that form. And then the last thing here, he talks about wandering stars. 
wandering stars. In verse 13, he says, not just wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Remember, everything becomes evident. But then he says, wandering stars for whom the glory or the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Uh, it's not a real easy way to describe this, wandering stars. We know that stars don't wander, right? I mean, any astrologist would tell you, you go out and you see, what, the North Star is there every night, pretty much in the same position. It doesn't move um, in, that, in that way. So here, some people say, well, maybe it signifies a meteor. Sometimes it, it may signify a shooting star. And, and that's maybe closer to what, what we're really talking about here. Um, something that flashes across the sky while it looks spectacular in the moment. But then guess what? Gone. It's on the scene, and then it's gone. And there's no lasting effect of good that it does. Um, it's just kind of like a shooting star, just a boom, just a, you know, just a, a blast in the, the darkness. It's there. Everybody goes, wow, and then it's gone. That's the effect of these false teachers, these apostates. And a lot of them, you know, you can look down through history. They've appeared, and some of them had pretty big followers. And they go through a stage of history, but then eventually what happens? They fall away. Uh, it's, it's, it's very sad, but th that's what happens. Um, they promise this enduring spiritual light and direction. They promise everybody that, wow, this is the, the, this is the way to go. This is what we're aiming for. This is, but it's all basically just a worthless flash in the pan. And 2 Peter, verse 4, um, he talks about this judgment that awaits them at the end of verse 13. He says, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Second uh, Peter 2, 4 says, For God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. And then in verse 9 of Second Peter 2, he says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous, listen, under punishment until the day of judgment. This is one thing we're talking about about on Sunday is, is this pending judgment that God will meet out here on this earth. This is very real. It's not a fanciful tale. Um, and even in verse uh, thir uh, thir 17, we already read that, chapter 2, he says, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. He, he uses these striking descriptions to paint this judgment of all these false teachers, these apostate teachers, these people who are basically hypocrites in every way, immoral teachers, and he says, you know what, they don't represent the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't represent the word of God. Uh, they twist the word of God. They take it and they, they use it for their own means, right? And, you know, you hear them all the time. Well, you know, the Bible says you'll, you'll reap what you sow, so you sow your seed, brother, right? I mean, that's, that's the terminology they use. And it's biblical terminology, but they ripped it out of context and they make it mean what it doesn't mean. Okay? And so we, we have to be aware of this. Um, true shepherds, on the other hand, have an accurate understanding of not only the gospel, but they have the right view of who Jesus is. Um, 
know, you hear some of these teachers saying things like, you know, uh, and, and they mean it in, in, in the wrong way. They, they call it the little God uh, uh, theology, okay? They, they actually declare themselves to be little gods. And you can hear them teach this. And they teach it unashamedly. Uh, and they use scripture to twist people's minds to begin to believe this thing. And then if you're God, well, how dare you withhold anything from me? You know, I deserve everything. And that's where you get the whole health, wealth, prosperity, gospel mentality. That's where it, go that's where it comes from. But a true shepherd possesses a humble, submissive attitude to Christ's lordship. He knows he's not the Lord that Jesus is. Um, they understand the seriousness of, of when the Lord says, I am the way, right, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, that's, that's basically the, the gospel in a nutshell. You know, if you're going to go to heaven one day, if you're concerned about your soul when you die, you better understand that Jesus is the way, that he is the truth, not one of many, but the truth, and he is the life. And understand that you can't get to the Father any other way. You can't go through Buddha, okay, Jehovah Witnesses, the Catholic Church, Baptist Church, whatever, any of those things will not take you to the Savior. You have to come through Christ in Christ alone. That's the only way you will ever be saved. And false teachers, on the other hand, they've chosen the way of Cain over the way of Christ. They've chosen the error of Balaam over the truth of Christ. And they've chosen the death of, of Korah and that rebellious attitude that we've studied over the life of Christ. And so we need to be aware that moving forward, God has in store judgment for these people. And we're going to look at that uh, next week. And I know this is not... Fun stuff to talk about, but there will be eternal consequences for those who do not take the Word of God seriously and uh, willfully deceive people by teaching uh, heretical uh, teachings and taking advantage of people for monetary gain. Uh, God will hold them account one day. And uh, I pray that none of us will be in that number. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray tonight that you would just cement in our hearts the truth. I know that um, it's hard to realize that there are people like this, even probably in our church, a small church. I'm sure that there are some that are here. And, and Lord, we pray that you would help us to be vigilant and, and help us to guard uh, the, your truth, the word of God. Lord, that we would not compromise um, for the sake of of just appealing to somebody. But Lord, your, your truth has already been established. And so we just want to stand firmly on that. And Lord, we pray that you would draw people to this place who have a desire to grow in your truth. And Lord, I pray tonight that if, even if there's any here tonight or by listening to the recording, Lord, who is unsure of their own salvation, that they would turn to you. And Lord, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Father, we've all sinned in a myriad of ways before you, before a holy God. And Lord, whether we've taken something irrespective of its value or, or used your name in vain or we've told a lie, those are all sins. And they all demand your judgment. 
and yet you've provided a way for us to be forgiven through Christ. And we just come, when we come to Christ and Christ alone, we put our faith, our trust in him and in the work that he did for us on Calvary. Your word says that you will, you will save us. You will change us. You will transform us. You will forgive us. You will free us from the burden of sin. And so for that, we are thankful. And we pray you bless us tonight. Bless our conversation around our tables now and just take us home safely at the end of the evening. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.